0: on this episode of Backstories. Kurt Vonnegut was a survivor of World War II. He survived the Battle of the Bulge.
1: He roller-skated there, as well as all over town, as he put it, hell-bent on getting autographs from the glamorous stars. It was glorious.
0: The trivia question, did Kurt Vonnegut's older brother discover cloud seeding?
1: Ray Bradbury wrote three great novels and 300 great stories. One of the latter was called The Sound of Thunder. The sound I hear today is the thunder of a giant's footsteps fading away. Welcome to Backstories, the podcast put on by Johnson County Public Library, where we talk about the creative influence behind authors and the books that they create. Today, I am with the curator of the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Museum and Library. Thank
0: you. Thank you for correcting that. It's the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library.
1: Okay, I was close. Um, Anyway, this is Chris LaFave, also known as the Gnome. I can't call you Chris. I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I don't know you as Chris. Um,
0: well, at least call me Yard Gnome.
1: Oh, yeah, that's, that's the yeah, that's full the title, full, right? Yeah,
0: YG for short. Before but
1: Facebook made you change it.
0: Yeah, but you can call me Gnome or Yardy or Yard or uh, Binomial Nomenclature was the most uh, creative, <laughs> creative nickname I've ever received.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury. So... I want to talk a little bit about Ray Bradbury first. Okay. So he was born in August of 1920, and he spent his formative years in Waukegan, Illinois. And he was given the name middle name Douglas after Douglas Fairbanks, who was a famous silent film star. And he is one of the most celebrated 20th century authors. He wrote nearly every genre, including science fiction, speculative fiction, horror, and realistic fiction. And, of course, his best-known novel is Fahrenheit 451. The family lived in Tucson, Arizona for a little bit in the 1920s before they returned to Waukegan and then went back to Tucson in the mid-1930s, just in time for the Depression. Ray was 14 when the family settled in L.A. The family arrived with $80 to their name, which is the equivalent of $810 as of 2021. Eventually, his father found a job, and they were able to stay, which made Bradbury ecstatic, as he loved Hollywood, he would rollerblade in between to try to catch all these famous people.
0: There were rollerblades, blade when was this?
1: It would have been like the 1930s. I think
0: a rollerblades is the 30s. Oh no,
1: sorry, he roller skated.
0: Oh, okay. Isn't that the same thing?
1: No, roller skates have four, rollerblades are in a line.
0: Guys, I learned something new today. I <laughs> thought rollerblades and roller skates were the exact same thing. No. I had no idea there was a difference between those two things.
1: <laughs> okay, so his family lived about four blocks from the Fox Uptown Theater on Western Avenue in Los Angeles, which was the flagship theater for MGM and Fox. There, Ray Bradbury learned to sneak in and watch previews almost every week. He roller skated there, as well as all over town, as he put it, bent on getting autographs from the glamorous stars. It was glorious. He encountered stars such as Norma Shearer, Laurel and Hardy, and Ronald Coleman. He also skated to the Brown Derby to watch the stars who came and went for meals. It was a restaurant where he recounted seeing Cary Grant, Marlene Dietrich, and Mae West, who he learned made a regular appearance every Friday night, bodyguard in tow. So that's a little bit about his growing up. Bradbury's first published story was Hollerbacken's Dilemma in January of 1938. It was in the January 1938 edition of the fanzine Imagination. The editor of Imagination for Shay Ackerman gave then 19 year old Bradbury money to attend the first World Science Fiction Convention in New York and funded his first fanzine, Futura Fantasia. Due to his bad eyesight, Bradbury was not deployed during World War II and was able to start a writing career. So, can you imagine if he had been deployed during World War II? Like, we would have totally missed out on all this amazing art.
0: Not necessarily. I mean, if he had survived the war... It would have brought, would have brought a different feel to, the, to his work.
1: Yeah. yeah. He could have been like a Vonnegut.
0: Yeah, for, well, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut was a survivor of World War II. He survived the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he survived the bombing of Dresden, and I think that was a pretty powerful part of uh, what made him who he was as an artist. Vonnegut himself might discount that. We know from, like, watching the documentary that recently came out, That there was a part of him that didn't really want to portray his experiences in Dresden as the sole focus of his human existence, which I I think is a very valid point. I mean, he lived a full life totally outside of that experience as well.
1: He lived, like, what, a good 70 years after? 84
0: years, and he took up smoking unfiltered Pall Malls at the age of 14. So that's really impressive. Yeah, that um, is impressive. Yeah he, did, lungs. yeah, he did develop emphysema towards the end, but that's, that's very impressive that you could hang on for that long. He said uh, smoking was a fairly dignified way of committing suicide. Uh, he also said, he, which uh, actually I'm not sure, there's people that don't find that joke funny anymore. And then he said he was going to sue the tobacco companies for millions because they hadn't killed him yet for false advertisement. And I'm guessing there's also people who don't find that joke funny anymore as well.
1: Right. I mean, I don't know. I think I think if you look at it through the lens of Vonnegut and you understand Vonnegut and his humor, it's it's pretty funny. Yeah. But I, I understand why people don't.
0: Well, he he did use. OK, this is where like Kurt's words were interesting, because he would say as the youngest child, he needed humor to get attention from anybody around him because his sister was five years older than him. Uh, his brother, Bernie, uh, was nine years older and so that's how he portrayed his humor but you know if you look at his life story you do wonder if humor on some level was a coping mechanism
1: i mean isn't it a coping mechanism for everyone
0: that's how i choose to see it like i I would be really i would be really shocked if someone was like i just make jokes because the world is perfect and (laughs) like what 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 would the humor be
1: (laughs) right right so let's, let's backtrack a little here for those that don't know vonnegut actually grew up in indianapolis
0: Yes, yes, he was from a very prominent family here. Uh, His great-grandfather was a German immigrant who founded Vonnegut Hardware Store and was a major civic education leader. His grandfather and father were super prominent architects. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut Sr., Kurt's dad, married Edith Lieber of the Indianapolis Brewing Company family and the Lieber State Park family. So, tremendous amount of family money, uh, a lot of family influence. Uh, That was affected by the Great Depression and Prohibition. Um, Kurt went to Shortridge High School, excelled, was popular, well liked. He, He served on the corner on the Shortridge Daily Echo, one of the first daily newspapers at a high school in the country, and that that helped format his experiences as well because he learned to write for his peers, and he would get uh, immediate he would get immediate feedback if what he wrote was not appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: If I'm not mistaken, the house he grew up in is on Illinois Street. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And he... his handprint is in the concrete. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he grew up at forty-four hundred one North Illinois Street. He lived there until nineteen thirty-eight. The family put the home in the market in nineteen thirty. It didn't sell till much later on. The uh, Clark family lived at forty-nine West Forty-second Street, and they did a housing swap with the Vonnegut. So they briefly lived in a smaller home while Kurt was in high school, and then they moved to Williams Creek as Kurt was kind of it's graduating. Like the
1: first Airbnb, isn't it?
0: <laughs> uh, this was more of a housing swap. Yeah, I would love to air any of those homes. Right. Uh, unfortunately, the Williams Creek home is gone. Uh, they raised that, so that's unfortunate. But the other two homes are still standing.
1: Yes, that's fantastic. Ray Bradbury, inspired by Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, began to write sci-fi and was invited by Forrest Ackerman to join the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. Bradbury's first paid piece, Pendulum, he was paid $15.00. It came out in pulp magazine Super Science Stories in November 1941. He sold his first solo story The Lake for 1375 at 22 and became a full-time writer by 24. But he tried to submit a story to another pulp magazine called Weird Tales and it was a story called Homecoming. Weird Tales said no, and so actually Mademoiselle magazine published it and he was spotted by a young Truman Capote as someone to watch. Capote picked the Bradbury manuscript as a slush piece, which led to its publication of Homecoming, which ultimately won an O. Henry Award in 1947. So can you imagine Truman Capote being like, that's really cool, we need to publish that?
0: Truman Capote was a, a pretty influential individual. Vonnegut knew him as well. I'm trying to, in my mind picture the stories involved i know i know that that vonnegut loved seeing truman capote on tv say that most artists are actually terribly incompetent at anything other than what they do and and i thought i thought that was really i'm paraphrasing but he he was quoted in playboy as saying that and kurt was like i would like to stop sucking at everything else but yeah i think there was some uh some utter truth in that of course as a fanatic kerouac fan it's pretty painful that Truman Capote was like, yeah, that's not writing, that's typing. <laughs> I, I strongly disagree with that perspective.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm going to reference an earlier conversation that we had where you were talking about how, how people create art, and, and particularly jam bands, or really any artist. Do you want to talk about that?
0: Well, I, I, and I think a lot of artists defend that perspective in different ways. Like Vonnegut would say, making art is not a way to make a living, which obviously people that are trying to feed themselves might see. Yeah. Might, might, might aggressively defend their need to eat, eat food or what have you. And, and, and maybe Vonnegut, I think Vonnegut was speaking much more on an emotional health level where he said that making art is a way to make your soul grow. You can write a poem, sing badly in the shower, write a nice letter to a friend. There are all these things that make you feel more alive or even happy to be alive. Uh, I was comparing that uh, with the concept of improvisation, of of jazz music, which Vonnegut was also a fanatic of. And yes, jam bands on on, on what a lot of jazz musicians would call a lower level. But there was, it was actually a a, a famous improv comedian named Del Close who, uh, who said that watching great improv was like watching people put a plane together when it's already in the sky. That's exactly how I think that feels. And when I feel like I'm being biased towards improv I want to say that anybody that creates something out of nothing has done something tremendous and that's where Vonnegut kind of finished his commentary where he said you will have earned a tremendous reward you will have created something and that's huge that's that's enormous that's a thing of immense value in society. It
1: is and I think that's something that we, we learned coming out of 2020 2020 and the lockdown is the value of art because how many of us spent so many hours just watching Netflix or even baking sourdough? Like, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, the, um, I, oh, I love that you mentioned baking sourdough cause that was something I was like, what is happening? I, and, and I'm speaking as a major sourdough bread. Like there are, I, I, I almost can't identify other forms of bread. Like, like marble rye is like, that's too much. That's just too much. Yeah. I'm very big into sourdough, but if somebody was like, "Hey, you want to make your own sourdough?" I'd be like, "Okay, how lonely and unhappy is your life right now? I'm really struggling." Right. But, but you know, because I, but everybody has their thing, right? Yeah. So for me, it was the band Fish started releasing like once a week not only their live catalog for free. You know, you were free to watch these concerts. Right. But they were encouraging you to donate to various nonprofits that were helping people with the food, water, and shelter realm. And then they were putting up, they called it Dinner in a Movie because Fish has a song from the 1990s called Dinner in a Movie. Okay. And the only lyric is, let's go out to dinner and see a movie. And (laughs) that's literally the only words. And they set it up to where they were using gourmet chefs that they knew who would give away a recipe. And the, the whole goal here was to raise money for people who were struggling. Yeah. But what I found was like, not only am I reaching for these concerts, I'm just using Spotify excessively. And like you said... And I, I'm a little freaked out by our addiction to television, like in a David Foster Wallace kind of way. Like, we, yeah. we reach for TV so hard. I always tell people Vonnegut, if he were alive today, would be tackling technology full throttle. He'd be like, oh, man, this whole Facebook thing was supposed to make us less lonely. Instead, it's driving us to some kind of mass psychosis. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. really weird. But the arts and humanities helped carry people through a lot. Myself included, my, my band couldn't go near each other because our drummer's wife was pregnant and our guitar player was working in an ER pharmacy. like we just we, we didn't spend any time together. So I, I took a painting and I am a terrible artist. I am a god-awful... Like, I have no... I, I can't draw stick figures to save my life.
1: I've seen some of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's... It's, unlo- it's like an elephant at the zoo did it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's
0: like somebody with both hands tied behind yeah. their back and put a pencil in their nose and started <laughs> yeah. going like this. Yeah. Like, you the know... The
1: titles are, are great, though. Thank,
0: yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, because I have some literary talent, but yeah. I have virtually no visual art talent whatsoever. Yeah. But I did that because I was going out of my mind. And I'm, mar- I'm married to an introvert. We have two kids. Every night during the pandemic, it was just like, oh, my babies. And I was like, I haven't been to a party in one week. I haven't been to a party in two weeks. I haven't been to a concert in three Just going completely out of my mind. Because right. human beings are not meant to be that removed from each other. And, yeah, so long story short, the, yes, the arts and humanities were very dependent on them. And artists and um, musicians and writers probably should make a living since we can't survive without them on any level whatsoever.
1: No, we cannot.
0: Thank you for letting me go on that impassioned rant that no. covered covered many bases. <laughs> no,
1: you're great. I, I I mentioned this earlier, but one of the best concerts I've been to was actually at the Vonnegut Library at their old location and it was the Wooden Wire Bluegrass. And part of it, it's because I don't go to a lot of concerts. And part of it, it's because I really wasn't expecting Shame it to be that you. great. <laughs> but, it, you know, I still keep their CD in my CD player. And, you know, I get in the car, turn on, and my mom's like, what is this god-awful music you're listening to? And I was like, this is bluegrass, and I love it. And I make people listen to it.
0: Yeah, we do, I, I played in the bluegrass band when I lived in Chicago. And I, and I remember, like, people don't realize bluegrass is party music when you do it in a bar starting at 10 p.m., uh, people get up and dance around, and it's a lot of fun. Well, I mean,
1: it's kind of like the forerunner of rock and roll anyway.
0: Yeah, mixed with blues and, and, and jazz to a certain degree, it certainly has that driving sensibility. Uh, but the guy from Wooden Wire, he, the mandolin player, actually met me at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, and I gave him my card. And I just had no idea that two years later they'd be like, hey, we're swinging through Indiana. And I was like, come play the museum I work at.
1: Yeah, the acoustics in there were were fantastic. Yeah.
0: yeah. We still have live music at the new space, yeah.
1: Nice. Yeah, I know. I'll get up there eventually, I promise. You're forgiven. You know. Do you guys, that reminds me, do you still have the giant um, timeline from the Big Bang to now? Because that was always my favorite.
0: We do. Mm -hmm. It is part of our archive, because put together fully, it doesn't fit on any one wall in the inside of the museum, which is fascinating that you can go from a two-room storefront where an absurdly large piece of art fits yeah. to a three-story building where an absurdly large piece of art does not fit.
1: I feel like Vonnegut <laughs> would appreciate, though, if you just kind of made the pieces wherever.
0: That's been discussed as well. There's a lot of... Di- what, what I love about us being a free speech organization, and, and common decency is a part of it. We don't yell, sling curse words at each other or anything. But there's, there's a lot of discussion about that because, like, I think the piece looks best... Uh, okay, there's two different parts of this thing that we're discussing. There's a timeline that tells you the story of Kurt Vonnegut's life and kind of the story of the human race below. Um, but it's also a very abstract... I love how you
1: just said the human race below, as if Kurt Vonnegut's like... It's above
0: it, yeah. Yeah, it's above Which it. Which he was, he was. He was. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I had to point that um, out. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut, way cooler than the human race. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I knew it well, I lived in Muncie and I knew this guy who worked at Mancinos and, and he would like come up with secondary pizza res- recipes and he'd be like, Someday I'm gonna open a restaurant called the Way Better Mancinos and it <laughs> and it became like a, a standing joke. So I, I you know, the other part of this timeline is an abstract drawing of the Rocky Mountains with the quote from Slaughterhouse Five where he talks about how all time is all time. It looks like a drawing of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. It does not necessarily go away. Which is science fiction to the uninitiated to the Vonnegut's work but to other people they can look at it and say okay Vonnegut was trying to cope with something and one way that it's very easy to cope with grief or loss or death or something like that is to really feel like someone is still alive in the past like it, you know in 2010 someone you miss is still there
1: right yeah and they this still kinda of...
0: <laughs> is on a loop or something yeah, yeah it just
1: folds in on itself yeah
0: it may or may not be true, and I've met people who are Tralfamadorian truthers. Yeah. They're a trip.
1: So I know when we talk about Tralfamadorians that there is speculation that that word comes from Trafalgar. Is that true?
0: Well, Vonnegut really broke our hearts with the documentary that Bob Whitey recently, Academy Award-winning director Bob Whitey, did.
1: Did he debunk that?
0: Kind of. Um, basically, he was up at Lake Max. And, well, here's the thing. It may not be completely untrue. Because I'm sure Kurt Vonnegut, even as a child, might have had some awareness of Brown County, Indiana. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, he did acknowledge that he would go up to Lake Maximkucky with his family and there'd be all the cousins and the aunts and uncles around. Again, when you're a little kid, you got to be precocious to get someone's yeah. attention. And so Vonnegut's like pointing out the names of the, the stars and the planets, the Big Dipper and blah, blah, blah. And eventually he would say, and that's Tralfamador. Aww, that's so so cute. it's like it's like a word he made up as a, as a kid. So that isn't to say that Trafalgar isn't somewhere in that mix.
1: Yeah, I just remember you telling me that one time. No,
0: because I oh I believed it as well. The, it's that's, kind of like the, Bigfoot,
1: right? Like could be the truth, could not be the truth. Who knows?
0: Absolutely, and um, and I, I I've got I've got only medium interest in truth too because yeah. I find mystery more interesting than knowing all of the answers. Like. Yeah, I, I was probably in my twenties when I learned the difference between there, there, and there, because I just didn't see the. I mean, point and you're thirty-nine,
1: and you just learned the difference between roller skate and roller blade. So.
0: Yeah, which I mean, I still I don't know that you're telling the truth about that. You could be lying. I haven't seen I haven't seen it on the internet yet. It's I on mean, the internet, you
1: know, well, you know, yeah, internet. yeah, we
0: got the picture of Abe Lincoln saying the trouble with quotes on the internet is that you never know if they are genuine. That's that's an Abe Lincoln quote.
1: Yeah, and I feel like Vonnegut would appreciate that. Yeah.
0: Man, there's nothing quite like going to the Lincoln Museum in uh, Springfield, Illinois. I don't know if it's the Illinois state government having so many millions to do that, but, like, the museum is incredible. Yeah. And you can see enough exhibits there to realize just how deranged of a time the United States of America was in during his reign. Like, Yeah. we we could probably have a separate podcast on that entirely. But probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Another thing that Bradbury and Vonnegut have in common is their love of libraries. Yeah. Of course. Bradbury was once quoted. He said, Libraries raised me. I don't believe in colleges and universities. I believe in libraries because most students don't have any money. When I graduated from high school, it was during the Depression and we had no money. I couldn't go to college, so I went to the library three t- three days a week for ten years. And he said, You can't learn to write in college. It's a very bad place for writers because the teachers always think they know more than you do and they don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's hard to speak for him in that regard, because Vonnegut did go to five universities, and depending on your take on it, like, okay, so he was a relatively fine student at Shortridge; he wasn't awful by any means. And he'd been offered a job at the Indianapolis Times right out of high school, and his family taught him out of accepting it. They said, you'll never make a living as a writer. <laughs> <Yeah>. And Kurt's, <laughs> Kurt's dad was an architect who just experienced the Great Depression, which, you know, economic downtimes are hugely influential to people. <laughs> right. Your safety and survival being threatened
1: yes. will definitely
0: yeah. affect you. There's, it would be absurd to argue otherwise. Yeah. So, you know, when Kurt's older brother, who was this brilliant physicist who later discovered that silver iodide could be used to simulate rain, uh, so if any of you out there in podcast land uh, get the trivia question, did Kurt Vonnegut's older brother discover cloud seeding, the answer is yes. Um, but yeah, he gets, he, he gets <laughs> Kurt to go to Cornell and study chemistry, and Kurt does terribly there really, really badly. But, he, you know, he's fond of beer drinking at his fraternity, Delta Upsilon. Uh, he's very fond of his work at the Cornell Daily Sun, where, again, he excelled as, you know, journalism as a thing that he wanted to do. And then, of course, in his junior year, World War II kind of interrupted stuff. But even at the University of Chicago, after the war, where he was attempting to get his master's degree in anthropology, he really enjoyed the study of society. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't necessarily excel but I think it was mostly his thesis, his attempt to write a thesis about the similarities between Native American artwork of the Ghost Short Rebellion and uh, Cubist painters from Spain that they said they couldn't work with. And so Kurt was like, well, I've got a baby do any second. got to get out of here. So uh, that's, that's how he ended up doing PR for General Electric. Now, long story short, you know, he was teaching English at the University of Iowa in the mid-60s while working on Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. He talked a little bit about how you're going to have some students who you know, excel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think he made many remarks that being ambitious is 90% of it. Like if you're going to slam through the wall, then you don't, don't worry about education because you're going to get where you're going because you literally don't care about anything else. But if you do care about something else, that's when the major mitigating factors come in. Even being judicious with your time, like speaking as someone that sucks at time management, I can understand that Like, if you have other things going on in your life, that's going to be major. Yes. Uh, so long story short, he was asked in the 70s, do you think literature could be taught? And Vonnegut said, oh, I had amazing teachers. They were called editors. If I didn't give them exactly what I wanted, I didn't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> and he was referring to the short story writing world. But I mean, I, I think that's probably, there's probably a kernel of truth to that today.
1: That uh, short stories. my mind immediately went to Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. Because I don't know how many times I read that in high school. So many. Yeah. But.
0: Well, it's weirdly flawless. Like, it's, a, it's like a seven or eight page short story where there are no wasted words or wasted scenes. Right. He was the master of the excessively short short story where you'd be like, wow, that was only seven or eight pages and has tremendous literary merit.
1: Yeah. So when I was in college, we had winter term. And I took a three-week course on Vonnegut. I read probably, I don't know, 12 Vonnegut books and stories in that short time. And I remember we watched this. It was on VHS, so it was older. And it, it was basically, like, his stories made into shows. But Vonnegut was, like, in between, kind of like the Rod Serling. Yeah. And it was just really cool. And I wish I could find it, and I can't. But... Sorry, total random aside. I was going to say,
0: we probably have that in our archives somewhere. You probably do,
1: yeah. I was also thinking, Aaron Cataldi and I went, I don't know, five or six years ago to the IRT, and they did one of his plays, The Name of Which Escapes Me, and it is also a movie that I own on DVD now. But we were the youngest ones in the audience, I swear to God, by like 30 years.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: But it was really good. I can't remember what it was called for the life of me, though. Was it
0: Happy Birthday 1 in June?
1: No, it had time in the title.
0: Oh, Who Am I This Time? Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: Who Am I This Time? Yeah, and it was really good. And we went just because it was Vonnegut, of course, you know. And tickets mean, were cheap and we were poor it, college students. It's an
0: adorable and funny short story. I mean, the, yeah. the idea that the woman who's beautiful and the man who has no social skills. Vonnegut did kind of put a funny twist on that. Which is like, oh, but the guy is the main s- stage actor in town. And so he can be any part that he ever wants to play, except for himself. Yeah. So the woman falls in love with him and says, you know what? This isn't really a big deal. Let's just be characters forever. Yeah. And so it just becomes a factor of, um, I don't know. I, I saw that at IRT as well, actually. It was a good play.
1: Yeah. So apparently you were at the Aerosmith concert that I was at, and the same play that I saw.
0: Amen. And, you know, my, my memories, when I was 14, life was less stressful. I, I do remember being like, man, Aerosmith, top priority of the summer. Yeah. Just like Days of Confused in 1976. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> Talking about theater, a lot of Bradbury's um, works have been turned into TV shows and plays. Aaron and I re- recently, well, I'm going to say 2019, so pre-pandemic, saw this one-man show about the life of Ray Bradbury and it was phenomenal. It was at the District Theater on Mass Ave. Yeah. It was just like there one little room and we sat front row and it, this guy's name is Bill Oberst and he's like a legit actor. Plays like little parts on uh, Law and Order SVU and like other little or not, you know, like other little bit parts in other popular shows. And it was phenomenal. Okay, so first of all, he had to memorize everything and then do it in front of people. And it was just like the story of Ray Bradbury's life. And it was just, I don't know, it was so good. And then he came back last year and did a Halloween um, one based on uh, Bradbury's short story, Pillar of Fire, which I, to me is the precursor for Fahrenheit 451, um, which is like, I think the most well-known Ray, Bad- Ray Bradbury and most timely Ray Bradbury. I should have worn that shirt today too. Fahrenheit
0: 451? Yeah.
1: I have lots of literary shirts, and I could have worn. And I just, you know, I think about the fact that this story came out in, I want to say it was like 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And then it it grew and and expanded. Because the whole point of the Pillar of Fire is that they get rid of all the old stuff. So they're digging up, they're digging up graves. They're getting rid of the bodies. And when they do that, this guy accidentally wakes up. And he remembers all of the... The literature that they've gotten rid of. So Dracula and Edgar Allan Poe. And so he, and you know, and he's like, what is it like to be the last person to remember those? And what is it like to live in a world without art, which we kind of touched on earlier? But it's a uh, very. I
0: hope to hell I never find out.
1: Yeah, me too. But the thing, they incinerate all of it. So I think, you know, when he, he wrote that and then he wrote Fahrenheit 451, and the firefighters then go out and destroy all the books because you know why why contain it to one incinerator when it's
0: well and he was talking about pain too he, yeah. he seemed to believe that if we take knowledge away we'll be taking pain away from people
1: ignorance is bliss
0: yeah that and, and ignorance is bliss is a I mean I think that tenant I think that tenant still exists in the world um, and and who wouldn't be seduced by a, the thought of a painless existence I thought it was really interesting that Bradbury later in life said, you, don't, you know, you don't have to burn books to make people ignorant. They just have to not read them. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's much more of a voluntary choice uh, yeah. than people think it is. And, you know, my wife and I, we were no exception to the whole Netflix addiction you were telling me about. I thought it was interesting that as the pandemic went on and some of the societal upheaval that was going on, the less I was able to watch dystopian shows of any kind. Yeah. I I just stopped watching Game of Thrones, stopped watching The Handmaid's Tale. I couldn't watch Ozark. That's when you know you're your mom because the minute you see a violent television show, you're like, not for me. Right? When when you're a teenager, you're like, cool, that guy's head got chopped off. And now (laughs) now I'm old and I'm like, I don't want to see violence ever again for any reason.
1: No, I, I feel that. I years ago had watched all of Six Feet Under. Yeah. And I love that show. Absolutely tears you to pieces. I mean, rips your heart out over and over again. And I recently got HBO Max and I was like, Oh cool, I'll rewatch this and I got I made like thirty sec like thirty minutes into the first episode and I was like, I cannot and I think it's because we've spent so much time like living in a time if, of
0: want, and in a, a time, time of terror. Time. Yeah, and, yeah,
1: yeah. And I'm just like, I need something stupid. So I binge watched all nine seasons of Big Bang Theory instead. Uh, I didn't
0: take it quite that far, but I, uh, <laughs> I high five on admitting that though.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So I,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: teasing you. Yeah, you're um, fine. No, okay. So long story short, we, we got this show called Ted Lasso.
1: Okay, I've heard about it. It's
0: incredibly uplifting.
1: Didn't it just end?
0: The season did. Okay. It's not uplifting in a hokey way. Like, hey, we're—it's so uplifting. This isn't art. This is yeah. just silliness, which has which has artistic merit, but it was more about dealing with the real world in an uplifting, respectful, kind uh, fashion. There was this amazing scene where this guy, who's portrayed as being sort of a jackass, is you know trying to take his soccer team back from Ted Lasso, played by. Okay, I'm going to forget the actor's name now. It's okay, I forget
1: things um, all the time. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so, long story short, they, they uh, engage in a game of darts. And towards the end, this guy, Ted Lasso, starts to talk about how the bullies I knew growing up, I always wondered why they didn't understand me, why they were so mean. And then over time, I realized that they, they were just closed-minded. They weren't curious. Yeah. And he said something funny. He was like, you know, if you'd really thought out this contest, you would have first asked me, did I grow up playing a lot of darts?
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: sure enough, like he, he wins the game, spoiler alert. And, um, and, and he said the last words he's about to throw the bullseye was, uh, you know, be curious, not judgmental.
1: I think that's a good...
0: And I thought of all, of all the, the... It probably took a team of writers three years to come up with that slogan, but it's, it's a good slogan to live by. And I think Kurt Vonnegut, you know, with the free speech and common decency thing, would say that's a good thing to... Because, to, you know, living in a society where ignorance is glorified probably has some negative side effects. Probably. But a society where the ignorant have to run and hide is also really dangerous, so it's like...
1: Yeah. I mean, extremes yeah. on either end are really dangerous, I think. Yeah,
0: and, and so I think Vonnegut was going for some kind of... You know, he says in that book banning letter that he wrote to the head of a school board in North Dakota, where he, uh, where they were burning his books. He said, you know, if you were to read my books, as educated people were, would, you would, um, you would learn that they weren't sexy at all. They weren't advocating for wildness of any kind. They were um, asking, begging that people be more charitable than they often are towards one another. And that's ironically very true. Like you can. If you go into Vonnegut's books looking for four-letter words and drawings of assholes, you'll find them. Yeah. And if you go into Vonnegut's books looking for something that will offend you, just like if you get out of bed in the morning, you will probably find it. Yeah. But if you're going looking for some kind of artistic expression, you will find that too.
1: So I think I saw on Facebook that the library, like the Vonnegut Museum and library is giving out copies of Slaughterhouse Five. Is that is that you?
0: Yeah, and we've been we've been doing that for a while. Uh, in the summer of 2011, so six months after we had the grand opening, there was a college professor in Republic, Missouri, uh, who was homeschooling his own children. We found out the local school had Slaughterhouse Five. We started mailing free copies of Slaughterhouse Five uh, to kids in the area who wanted to read it. And we continued this process throughout all of time. Because whenever we hear about a school district saying students aren't allowed to read Slaughterhouse-Five for school, we send the book their way. Yeah. Uh, usually they have to request them. But it's 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 an interesting process. Uh, so this time around there was a group called Moms for Liberty. Mm-hmm. And they had Slaughterhouse-Five on the list of books that they didn't want taught or discussed in school. And uh, so we've been doing that with this, uh, this district in Florida. Nice. And that's this year. That's like current time.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I often think of the quote that Vonnegut had, and I have it on the tote that it, my mom actually bought for me for my birthday at your store. That the America that Vonnegut loves still exists at the front desk of the public library, or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I loved I loved what Bradbury said too, because I think I think libraries are exactly. Um, if you look across the spectrum, there really aren't a lot of people on any particular wavelength in any society that hate their libraries. People want libraries. Though there's some debate when it comes to budgeting time and stuff like that, but there's for the most part people don't think of libraries as a negative thing.
1: Now, you know, I was telling someone else this earlier this week, but I, I think my friends hate me cuz they're always like, "Well, I need to do something." I'm like, "Well, go to the library." Like, go to like everything. I'm like, "Well, the library does that. Why would you Dude, why would you pay for that and i think they're just like Alyssa. would you stop talking and i'm just like but this is all free like yeah please use it please
0: well i was i was really proud of the muncie public library because you know we recently had somewhere. a yep, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah i went to college at ball state i for full 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 disclosure they, they were saying to people who are uh under housed that hey you know with temperatures at 100 degrees come into our library yes. I thought there was tremendous dignity, respect for decency in that, and I don't see many other institutions saying, hey, come on in off the street and just yes. loiter. Yeah, what, what other <laughs> places call loitering, which is a crime, in libraries is considered your right to exist in right. decency and human and human kindness or whatever. yes
1: johnson county public library also offers that we partner with um united way of yeah. johnson county so when temperatures are extreme either too hot or too cold people can come in and they can cool down or warm up and yeah. you know what honestly like i don't care what you're doing in the library i mean
0: there's lines be decent but
1: yeah, yeah. like you're, we're here just to, to help, and we're here for you to just be, and to be a place where you can exist without having to pay for something. You don't owe us anything. Yeah. And it, it's just lovely.
0: Yeah, I think that's something both Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury would hold in high
1: regard. Yes. Yes, it would. Or yes, yes, they, uh, hmm. yes, speaking, they would. Yes, they Speaking
0: for two people who are deceased.
1: Yes. Yes, I think they would. Going a little bit back to Ray Bradbury, I wanted to talk a little bit. So Bradbury died on June 5th of 2012, so 10 years ago, at the age of 91, after a lengthy illness. And all of his personal his personal library was willed to the Waukegan Public Library in Illinois, where he had many of his formative reading experiences. Current... At the time, President Barack Obama said, for many Americans, the news of Ray Bradbury's death immediately brought to mind images from his work imprinted in our minds, often from a young age. His gift for storytelling shaped our cult- reshaped our culture and expanded our world. But Ray also understood that our imaginations could be used as a tool for better understanding, a vehicle for change, and an expression of our most cherished values. There is no doubt that Ray will continue to inspire many more generations with his writing, and our thoughts and prayers are with his family and friends. So numerous people paid tribute to his author. Steven Spielberg stated that Ray Bradbury was his muse for the better part of his sci-fi career on the world of science fiction and fantasy and imagination. He is immortal. Neil Gaiman felt that the landscape of the world we live in would have been diminished if we had not had him in our world. And Stephen King released a statement on his website saying, Ray Bradbury wrote three great novels and 300 great stories. One of the latter was called A Sound of Thunder. The sound I hear today is the thunder of a giant's footsteps fading away, but the novels and stories remain in all their resonance and strange beauty."
0: I wasn't expecting Stephen King to be the most emotionally effective one, but I, I that really got to me. Right? Um, I don't have a list of quotes of what people said when Kurt Vonnegut died, and the one that Fox News made uh, was quite unkind. <laughs> <laughs> um, some, something about he was such a bitter old man, so I'll say it for them or something like that. Oh, yes. they called him Famous, Rich, and Irrelevant.
1: <laughs> really? Yeah,
0: such a such a nice obituary. <laughs> yes.
1: So I have a funny, uh, well, sort of funny story. He was supposed to be in Indianapolis later that year because it was the year of get here. Yeah. 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 And so I had emailed him and was like, hey, can I get tickets to hear him speak? And then the next day. How the were
0: you movie, in 2007? Hmm.
1: I was a senior in high school. If I was 23,
0: then, oh, okay.
1: I was 18, right? 18. Math okay. is hard. It is hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was in high school because I was doing a high school um, PowerPoint oh, okay. on, on Vonnegut. And so I was like, hey, can I get tickets to see him speak? And then, so I wrote this email, and the next day news broke that he had died. And yeah. I was like, great. So then I had a friend a few years ago that was like, hey, Margaret Atwood's coming in to the VSTT, do you want to go? And I was like, I do, but the last time I went to go see an author, they died. So I don't really want to kill her. Um, But she's from Canada, Universal Healthcare. I'm sure she was fine.
0: Well, in the Buzzkirk Chemley, you don't want to miss a night at that venue. That's a beautiful theater.
1: It is. I actually saw the Mountain Goats there as well.
0: Very envious about this. I I love that band.
1: I love the Mountain Goats, yeah. Yeah, Great
0: band. John Green's favorite band.
1: Yes, yeah, and the the lead singer, John Darnielle, is also an author.
0: Oh, yes, I knew that, too. The
1: Universal Harvester is my favorite. It's a horror about a video store in, like, the 90s. It's probably something you would actually like. Yeah. So that was my, my scare and kill, almost killing Margaret Atwood. Have, have, I you was ever,
0: like... <laughs> have you ever read Chuck Klosterman's book, the 90s? The one that I just did! Came out? I it's just, amazing! It it's it such is. a great book!
1: So it is. Chuck Klosterman. I, that's the first one I'd ever read by him. I loved, okay, so I love Biodome. With Polly Shore. Yeah. I made Cataldi watch it because I was like, you gotta watch this movie. It's fantastic. And she thought it was the dumbest thing ever. (laughs) But I was like, no, this. And um, I really loved the whole, like, where food was all the different color. Yeah. That phase. Remember when you'd get, like, blue ketchup? Like, it was so weird. I don't know. Clear Pepsi. Clear Pepsi. Yeah. That
0: line, that line when, when Klosterman says, there were many reasons to not drink Pepsi. It's too dark was not one of them. Like I, I just I just thought that's I, I was I nearly pissed myself laughing at that at that remark.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I highly recommend it and I highly recommend the audio book if you can get a hold of it, because hearing him read it actually I don't know if it was him, but I think it was. I think he narrates his I need, own. I
0: need music to drive. I can't I can't I can't listen <sighs> to people talk and drive. I'll crash the car.
1: Yeah, and you got kids, so yeah, that's yeah. I
0: don't listen to background music, I background drive.
1: Okay. <laughs> But, yeah, I highly recommend The 90s by Chuck Klosterman.
0: Yeah, we both highly recommend The 90s by Chuck Glosterman. I'm trying to get him on our podcast, too. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's a great writer in general, but I, I was stunned by that. And it suddenly made the 90s feel so very far away.
1: Yeah. It was <laughs> just
0: like, oh, my God, why, why did my childhood just become prosaic in comparison to what's happening today? Right.
1: I love that I got to grow up in the 90s.
0: I do, too. I, I Listening to my son talk about how he was bored having to sit in the car for five seconds really upset me. Yeah. Because I was like, when I was a kid, my, my parents would have just ripped me a new one for that. they been like, oh, oh, five seconds of sitting still you can't handle? Oh, well, I, I can't say on the radio what my parents would have said. But <laughs> I, 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 uh, I would have been penalized heavily for being bored for five seconds of inactivity. Right, because that would have sounded insane during our upbringing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, completely I, insane. I always had a book with me, so you know, which checks out.
0: Well, thank God my kids are kind of readers. I'm, I'm, I'm relieved, by that—that's the whole thing with book banning. Like now that we have the internet in our pockets, yeah, and that like there are people who are like, no, there is some horrifying stuff on the internet. This, this is a big discussion about like. Really bad stuff you could find on the internet. Like, wouldn't you be overjoyed if your kids were into reading and not addicted to their phones? Like, this would be a victory of epic proportions <laughs> <and> at <that, laughs> this juncture. Right. I mean,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So that that's mm-hmm. really funny. I, I look back, um, you know, my parents were typical 90s parents, so they didn't want us having CDs with cuss words in them. Uh, you know, if we watched The Simpsons, my mom would be like, oh, they speak so disrespectfully to each other. And then they didn't care what I read. So I went yes. back through some of those Brian Jake's. Yeah. fantasy novels that I read as a kid? Yeah, Clooney the Scourge is coming. And then he slew Tenderfoot with a dagger. There was blood gushing from the rabbit's f- neck. And I'm just like, why was that okay for me to read but I couldn't watch The Simpsons? Of course, <laughs> course, the answer was I want my kid to read so I don't care what he reads.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought don't, that
0: was so funny.
1: <laughs> I don't think my parents ever really... Mm censored anything I read or watched, and I think I turned out fine. I mean, I was reading John Grisham at, like, 13, you the, know?
0: I, I will say, I think it's a long game. Yeah. The absence of censorship. You don't have to be willfully ignorant and say that it's nothing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I think you you are influenced by the culture around you. You can't you, you can't help that.
1: I had a professor that would always say location determines belief, and that's what I think about because whatever you're around is what influences you. So
0: there's there's tremendous truth to that. Yeah. We we lost our train of thought when we got into Klosterman, but I, I think that book's important because it it lets you know how removed from your childhood you are. <laughs>
1: yeah. Fun. Well, and,
0: and and the way he wrote about the 1996 election. Yeah. I really enjoyed that too because I was like, yeah, it wasn't lunatic time in America. Like it was. It sounds like the most boring election that could ever take place in the history yes. and future of the world
1: yes i agree like
0: you couldn't pay me to watch a tv show in which bob dole and bill clinton talked to each other <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes yeah that was such a good bug.
0: yeah yeah i was just i was weirdly blown away by that but i wanted crystal clear pepsi back right away so i could try right. it again
1: well they brought back zima
0: yeah but i mean then you find out it's all like zima is awful and then Clearly Canadian, speaking as a Canadian, turned out to be terrible. I I, we, I, I was in a, a shopping mall, and we saw Clearly Canadian. My wife was like, oh, we have to buy that right now. And we walk out there, it's undrinkable. And I was just like, that used to be a treat when I was a kid. That was something you looked forward to all summer long, was drinking Clearly Canadian.
1: Oh, that reminds me. So how do you define a Hoosier? Ha! <laughs> because i was thinking about this when you said that's part of my childhood it's undrinkable i remember drinking chocola i don't know if any of you remember that The
0: insides just curled up yeah yeah mm-hmm.
1: i loved it um i'm thinking
0: of Ovaltine too probably but i, I don't know chocola I was
1: like it was sold in a can you could get it for 25 cents out of a machine and it's kind of like Yuho, but better
0: I don't, I don't know if that's an endorsement. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I, I'm just I'm just but thinking about the 25 cents in a machine. Like, I miss those machines because they probably I don't know where you would have to go to even find a soda for 50 cents. It probably doesn't exist. Anymore. There is a
1: soda machine on Jefferson here at one of the car places, and they have a soda. They have a machine, and I think it's only 50 cents. And I've never gotten anything because I don't carry change. Yeah. But I always, I'm always like, oh, I should bring change so I can get something out of a soda machine. Because they don't even take, like, credit. Like, it's an old school. Kurt Vonnegut had a quote that said that everywhere you go, there's a Hoosier making a difference.
0: Everywhere you go, there's a Hoosier doing something very important there.
1: Yes. Same thing. Um, Um,
0: Now, there's context to this. Yes. It's from the novel Cat's Cradle.
1: I love Cat's Cradle. Yeah,
0: I know. It's my favorite Vonnegut book. It takes subject matters that hurt us like religion weaponry and the end of the world Mm -hmm. should I say fundamentalist religion just to be fair Um, and he makes them funny but one thing he's making fun of in Cat's Cradle is the concept of nationalism right so when he's using the term Hoosier He's calling it a grand faloon, which is a false carass, like a way that people choose to organize themselves, which isn't really real in the sense that a hoosier, like the, that a carass is, um, which is people who do God's work without ever realizing why or how.
1: Well, I was just recently talking to a friend this weekend, and she's from Michigan, and she was asking me, you know, I've been here 10 years, 12 years, however long, you know, at what point am I a hoosier? And I said, well, when you've read Vonnegut. And she's like, well, I read Vonnegut before I moved here. And I was like, great, you're fine. But how do you define being a Hoosier? Like, what are those quintessential things that make you a Hoosier?
0: I think it has to... Jesus, I think this might depend on how much of a memoirist you are and how much of your life you remember. Um, I think having a pork tenderloin sandwich while you're on a date, is um, that's a deep Hoosier moment. That is. I think visiting northwest indiana and hanging out with people who call it the region and going into bars where smoking is still allowed <laughs> is is a big part of uh being from indiana yeah i think uh going to a tin caps game in fort wayne or a railcats game in gary uh we is that have, hockey no it's baseball
1: Baseball. See, we
0: have a phenomenal selection of minor league baseball stadiums and teams uh, i should i should have mentioned the indianapolis indians uh both victory field and I remember this. In the dead of winter, I took Wesley, my four-year-old, on the day Hank Aaron died to go visit Bush Stadium, which has been preserved as apartments. Hmm. And that old ballpark where my mom would fall asleep in the second inning because she was so bored by baseball that she would pass out on my dad's shoulder and wake up every time the bat cracked and the audience yelled. Um, you know, seeing my son run around that base path was uh, was really meaningful to me. So, you know, the Hoosier thing is deep, uh, Brown County, getting to go hiking there, especially if you're not physically active like me. You know, we took like a mile and a half hike, and my reward was pulled pork nachos at uh, <laughs> at, at the at the brewery there. Totally yeah. worth it. Yeah. To- uh, what's What's the name of the brewery down uh, there? Big Woods. Thank God. Yeah, Big yeah. Woods Brewery. Highly. There's recognized. also one in Franklin. Yes, pulled pork nachos, um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then you got Bean Blossom. Oh
1: know, yeah. Which
0: my I was very lucky. Some hippies I went to college with. They had a, They had a wedding there. And my band, which hadn't played in 15 years, went and played their wedding. Nice. And, you know, that party went until about 4.30 in the morning. And I loved that there was a place where you can do that, where you can sit around and play guitars till 4 in the morning, that Bill Monroe, the godfather of bluegrass, who could have put his home in Kentucky, the state of bluegrass, literally the state of bluegrass, he chose Indiana instead. I don't know why. But I know that there's all these little wonderful, lovely things in Indiana. There's Richmond, Indiana, where they had a a recording studio where a lot of jazz and roots music recordings took place. I could go on and on. And this was something Vonnegut found interesting, too. Uh, Cole Porter is from Peru, Indiana, I think. Um, Wrote Stardust. um, No, Hoagy Carmichael wrote Stardust, and he did so while attending IU, Bloomington University. The history of Indiana is fascinating. It is. I haven't even talked about Eugene Debs from Terre Haute yet, and he is a huge influence on Kurt Vonnegut. So, yes. You know what we said about Ted Lasso being curious, not judgmental? I think every day, wherever you are in the world, you have an opportunity to be curious, not judgmental. I was leaving the New Orleans Jazz Festival once, and we got waylaid by a tornado in Mississippi. We thought we were in Tennessee later on that night. Turns out we were in Arkansas. <laughs> And we were, in the, we were in the town of Osceola Never heard of it
1: mm-hmm.
0: Found out we were in the birthplace of blues legend Sun Seals, and somewhere where Albert King Grew up who was like the king of the blues and, hmm. um, So we found This shack that they used to play in that's dying Of natural causes right next to the Mississippi River it Wasn't on Google or anything like that But we got to hang out there Which is just I mean it's a falling down abandoned building In the middle of nowhere but it was so cool to see Yeah Because natural death and historical ruins Are cool to see so I love that in the world, and I think Indiana has it like any other state. And if you're interested in that, I think maybe that makes you a Hoosier, just like Kurt Vonnegut was interested in Eugene Debs. You know, Ray Bradbury was a native Illinoisan, and I think because he was so interested in dandelion leaves in the creek that he grew up with around. Like, if you're looking for something interesting in the world, you'll find it.
1: I agree. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. I had so much fun talking with you. And thanks for driving down here to do this. Would you like to tell people where the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library is located?
0: Certainly. Uh, The Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library is uh, located on the historic Indiana Avenue. Uh, which is a jazz history location in Indianapolis. It's where Wes Montgomery and Freddie Hubbard and J.J. J. Johnson uh, all got their start. The Madam C.J. Walker uh, was the first African-American millionaire in the United States. She, uh, her theater still stands at the corner of Weston, Indiana. We are open every day except for Wednesday. Come take a tour. We have our own podcast. It's called The Vonnecast. It's available wherever you get your streaming.
1: Well, thank you for coming down here
0: on the next episode of backstories
1: the next episode i will be joined by tiffany phillips the owner of wild geese bookshop here in franklin and we'll be talking about art and being a woman in the world and experiences around that
0: backstories is a production of indiana's johnson county public library